1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, editorial director, here with Mara Levinsky, senior editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, there are some big stories brewing on Young and the Restless. Uh, we alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, but Devon and Abby have been getting closer. And with Amanda out of town and Abby's marriage to Chance on the rocks a bit, Devon and Abby will cross the line next week and it will have far reaching consequences. We're also going to see Sally make her choice between Adam and Nick. And, you know, I'm not sure who I'm rooting for there. I like her with both. Guys, but we also have an interview with Melissa Claire Egan who plays Chelsea, and her story has just been so raw and real. You know, we saw Chelsea contemplate suicide this week, and Missy has been doing an incredible job conveying Chelsea's pain and sadness and just really playing the heck out of her scenes. You know, I don't know what this says about me, but I really enjoy watching stories that delve into the character and how the character is feeling and seeing the impact of all of the highly dramatic events that unfold around them. So, I am I'm so in for this.
0: Yeah, I think Missy is absolutely to be commended for just how authentic and wrenching her work in this story has been. You know, those could not have been Easy days on the job. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Rebecca Herbst, GH's Elizabeth. Uh, I have had and continue to have some like major quibbles with the story of Elizabeth's mental health issues and how they relate to her parents' abandonment and the mysterious past trauma that she's been trying to get to the bottom of. But one thing I can absolutely find no fault with is how Becky brought it when Liz came face-to-face with her mother and father this week and unleashed her fury at them. It was so satisfying and really checked that box you just talked about, about, you know, delving deep into the character's psyche. It's interesting, you know, I think a lot of the time, soaps are driven by shocking reveals. But if you're watching a show every day and following the hints and the clues laid into stories along the way, oftentimes, well, it's still really fun to see the reveal unfold it's not necessarily shocking. And what ultimately can make for a more emotionally satisfying viewing experience or or payoff for how long you've invested in a character has like nothing to do with some uh, like wild twist in a plot. It's, it's more a storyline or scenes within a storyline that really put the focus on the interior life of a character. And I think how much buzz there was on social media this whole week about both of these performances speaks to how much appreciation the audience has for scripts that let the audience
1: go as as deep as uh, these two actresses did. I mean, absolutely. You know, that's the reward I feel we get for investing in these stories and following the journeys of these characters who we've seen go through so much. You want the emotion, you want the pain, you know, just as you want to see the joy of like weddings or babies being born. I guess the point that we're both making is that character driven stories as opposed to plot driven stories are really mm-hmm. what we're tuning in for and waiting for. You know, sure, an adventure story is fun and I love some comic relief, but I want the whole picture and it's almost crazy to think about how few and far between these deep dives are where we're really learning something new about someone we've watched for years and decades. And then you get to follow the aftermath with them. You know, I'm sure we're going to see Chelsea get some professional help. And I really hope that GH stays the course with this story with Liz so we can see what the ripple effects will be for her and her family and her life.
0: Well, while we are on the subject of the emotionally complex ladies of GH, I spoke to Emma Sams, who plays Holly uh, in the new issue where she talks about the twist that Holly is in league with Victor and is keeping secrets from Robert and how her act will become more challenging when Laura gets back to town and kind of sees right through her. Uh, And for our character study feature, I spoke to Laura Wright, AKA Carly, who offered some insight into how Carly has evolved over the years. Uh, One thing she said that I thought was really interesting is that she feels that the two life events that have had the biggest impact on Carly is the death of her son, Morgan, and then the birth of her first daughter, Jocelyn. Because while Carly had been a mom for a while, having a girl really made her take a look at the fact that she had like a little girl watching every move she made. Uh, She also told me that as much as she admired Sarah Brown and Tamara Braun, the two signature Carly's prior to her taking over the role. That she's super jealous that she didn't get to play the first years of Carly and specifically uh, play the Carly that first came to town, bent on destroying Bobby's life. Anyway, for Carly fans, I think that'll be a really fun read. Oh, I've
1: read it and it will be. Uh-huh. Um, but continuing our discussion of emotionally complex ladies of General uh-huh. Hospital, our guest today knows all about playing them on soaps. It's Allie Mills, who was best known to fans as Bold and Beautiful's Pam before she joined G.H.'s Heather. So let's check in with her and see how it's all going. Hi, Allie. Hi. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing better than I deserve.
1: (laughs) Wow, that is good to hear. It's so great to be checking in with you today. I feel like we haven't really seen you a lot, but you're now in General Hospital and we have a lot to talk about today. But we are gonna go back in time that you were born in Chicago into what seems like a very creative family. So for people who don't know, tell us about what your parents and step-parents did for a living.
3: Okay, well, the reason that I was born in Chicago is because my dad um, Mm. kind of started TV back in the late 40s, believe it or not, when there were like six people at NBC in Chicago. And um, he put on things like Second City, Studs Turkles place. Um, TV was just they didn't know what it was. It was just being formed. They were fooling around. It was all live. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. And um, and Dave Garraway, who is my sister's godfather because of it, he did that the first talk show, Garraway at large, you know, out of Chicago. And it was called the Chicago School of Television. And he ended up moving to New York and doing, you know, those big kind of bell telephone hour, Dinah Shore show, you know, the Patty Page show, those kinds of things. But um, so that's why I was born there in Cook County Hospital for anybody who's from Chicago.
0: I'm from Evanston.
3: So are, from- that's where my dad's from. Oh, that's wow. He was there. Yeah. So I- I've been there. It's Beautiful. Beautiful. And that's where Fred Savage is. He's not actually from Evanston. He's the town right next to it. I can't that is think. Correct.
0: And we went to the same tap dance school.
3: <laughs> I hate your name. You're that them. young. Oh young my. Fun fact, Mara. I'm your old mother. <laughs> okay. Um. So then, so then we moved to New York when he did, and my mom, um, was the editor of American Heritage Magazine. She was the first. Uh, she was the creative, you know, started the company with four men, which was amazing in those days. I mean, it was sort of unheard of to be a female executive, you know, of something like that. And so I used to go to the office with her in New York with her high heels and everybody smoked and drank in the office I mean, with no, with all the windows closed, everybody <laughs> smoked. It's like, it's amazing when you think how different life is. Absolutely. And they would, you know, move the pastry cart in and out, which is why I'd go visit mom. <laughs> and, um, and I and I grew up in New York City and my dad remarried a an actress who was um, her name for the people old enough that are listening. Uh, her name was Genevieve and she was the sort of stand, you know, um, what do you call it? But like Ed McMahon on The Tonight Show with Jack Parker, she was the, she'd sit in the chair with him and say, Jackie, Jackie. And she's the singer. She was a pretty famous singer you know, at the plaza and stuff like that. Very, very beautiful and a really cool person. Wow. Um, and so they lived in a fancy townhouse on the east side and me and my mom, single mother, mother of three, lived in a not so fancy apartment on the west side. <laughs> You know, divorce wasn't that worked out yet in the fifties, you know, mm-hmm. so women didn't always get the the better end of the deal mm-hmm. so right. um but she put us through private school she was really adamant about us going to a to a good school It was the school in the in the 50s was very tough in new york public school it was like split into two time periods mm-hmm. and um so i started act, acting in school in fifth grade it was my i did a, a shakespeare play i played um I think I was wall or something in Midsummer Night's Dream. I was one of the mechanical funny people. <laughs> That's so crazy. What school was it? Miss Spence School for Girls. Yeah. Still I there. Got, <laughs> I know it's there. I went back to visit because I got suspended and then expelled. Oh, okay
1: then. <laughs> so I went
3: back to visit to when I was doing the Wonder Years and went, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a fairly troubled kid. I mean, I was I was kind of a ravel rouser. Well, well
0: it sounds like a very fun era to to do it if you're going to be troubled, though. um, and, and,
3: you know, well, the 50s I, had a lot to rebel against, you know, right, I mean, right. it, it was great in a way like the wonder Year sort of like, you know, was the 50s, even though it took place later in the 70s. But that's where, you know, I, my character, in. Mm-hmm. but it, there was a lot of constraints. And uh, so there was a lot to rebel against for kids you know mm-hmm. and so I'm against that Spence school for
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that I am quite sure having been exposed to the arts at such a young age you know when did you feel the pull toward acting
3: well i mean honestly you know, then in, in fifth grade, even before fifth grade, my, my brother worked with a woman whose name I will never forget named Wanda Sponder. At I went, I was living in Hastings on Hudson, New York, and she was the drama teacher. And I was too young to be able to be in that class, but I would go, my brother was three years older and she was so fascinating. She had black tights and like leopard shoes, high heels and a little pencil skirt. And, and I think she had gray hair in these weird kind of cat glasses. And Wanda Sponder was really something, you know, like, (laughs) whoa. So I was drawn already to, I I didn't know what, but I I knew I wanted to be in the theater in some way or something like that. I wanted, you know, I don't know, to sort of break out. And and my parents were getting divorced. So I'm sure that fed into it. And I don't know how much of the fact that my dad married an actress fed into it. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. Mm but but then you know fifth grade sort of started it and then i you know went to summer theater as a kid
0: So very early on, you worked at the prestigious Williamstown Theater Festival, and you performed alongside some other rising stars, including Sigourney Weaver and the late Christopher Reeve. Tell us about that experience. How did
3: you know all this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mara does excellent research. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm actually on page hundred and something of Chris's book because I was his kind of first flame, which is amazing. We were both, I think, 15. Um, I was an apprentice at Williamstown. I started as an apprentice. Um, I My mother remarried somebody in New Haven, Connecticut, and there. then and, and the director of the Williamstown Theater taught drama at the Yale Drama School. And so I auditioned to be in the chorus of a Greek tragedy starring Olympia Dukakis when I was 15 years old. And I had to read in front of Nikos Sakharopoulos Um, who was opening his mail as I auditioned, which was really daunting because it was my first professional job, even though being an apprentice, you know, didn't pay anything really, but I got to be in this, you know, have a really great role in the great Greek chorus of this play with amazing actors. I mean, Mm -hmm. Olympia and her husband, Louis Zorich, they were both like really good stage actors. And so that summer Chris Reeve was there and we, you know, sort of had, Crush on each other. I mean we didn't do anything because we were 15 and <laughs> <laughs> the old days. I now now at 15. It's amazing what my grandchildren are doing, but um <laughs> uh so and then uh I stayed at Williamstown, I think it was four seasons, and um at that point I think I'd I'd gotten into Yale. Uh it was after, so I graduated from high school. And we started a thing called the Second Company with a bunch of Yale students and Sigourney was one of them. And my friend David Schweitzer, who's a director in New York and a, you know, amazing director and did a lot at the public theater and Lincoln Center and everything, um, he started this second company and the uh, there was just great actors in it. And we were young, really young. And all so after the big plays on the main stage, all the actors would come to see our we did Pierre Gint, we did I lots and lots of different plays, but that's the one I remember the most. And uh and Sigourney and I and and David were really close friends. And wow. Yeah.
1: Well, in 1973, you were part of the first full class of women to graduate from the previously all-male Yale University. So did you find the institution
3: welcoming to you as a woman? And how would you characterize your overall experience at Yale? Well, it was it was exciting to be in the first class of women. It was not the ratio was not normal. You know, it wasn't like 50-50 yet or anything. I don't even know if it is now, but it was, I don't think it was 10 to 1, but it was pretty close. So there was way more men. And I had been, before I went to Yale, I'd been at a all girls college, Bennington College. So, and I'd been at girls schools. So this was my first sort of co-ed experience. And yes, they were welcoming, but in a way, I mean, I, I was pretty rabid about making sure that the fraternities took women. I said, this is not gonna fly. You can't have Wolf's Club and, and not have women in it. You can't have, you know, Skull and Bones. They're not, you know, we're part of the campus now. So and and I I picketed Maury's, which was the drinking club and said, you have to have women at Maury's. You can have men's nights and women's nights or something. But, you know, um, it had been a very all male school for what, 300 years, 200 years. I don't know when it was started, but I think they, they both started way back in the 1800s, Harvard and Yale. So it was fun, you know, being sort of a radical picketer, which I was you know, in the different fraternities. And, but I, I really loved it. And that's when I got again, even more involved in drama because I got to take classes at the drama school. They'd never had women before. And I said, I wanna be an actress but you don't have any drama classes that will give me a grade. So they changed the curriculum. The Dean and I sat down and he, um, you know, let me, take drama at the drama school and sort of get it, get credit for it, even though they still didn't have a drama major as an undergraduate. So I had to, I majored in history of art, like my mom.
0: Um, Allie, first of all, I am falling utterly in love with you. That's number one, <laughs> number two. um, poor art. Okay, so you graduated magna cum laude, no big deal. Uh, okay. And speaking of art history, Is it true that you once found a painting worth millions in a Yale
3: cellar? I can't it. How do you know this stuff? You guys are amazing. Um, Yes. I, first of all, I loved, I'm sure it was because of my mom. I used to travel with her when I was little and she had a convertible MG and we'd go to people's basements all over America, especially the South. And these people had paintings like famous paintings in their basement, some of them. And, you know, my mother's loved American art because she was the art editor of American Heritage and and loved the stories of of, sort of historically how these paintings got painted. So I became obsessed with it. And so I did my thesis on an American landscape painter and the janitor of the art gallery, when I was looking at some of his paintings, Frederick Church up in the art gallery, he said, "Allison, my name was Alison back then because I had to change it for the union. He said, "Allison, I'm taking you to the basement. He said, there's a really big Frederick Church in the basement that hasn't been cleaned yet. And it's going to be in the process of cleaning. It's an amazing painting. He took me down there, turned on a single light bulb. And it was this painting of Mount Katahdin with the Indians. Frederick Church would go on these trips up the Hudson River in canoes with the Indians, and they'd show him the amazing landscapes. Like, check this out, they'd say. And they'd take him on these, you know, long, long day hikes. You know, they'd spend the night and stuff. And he had People with him, so he had like Oriental carpets and silver and wine and all that stuff. But the Indians would take him to show him the beauty of the country up the Hudson River. I mean, it's really amazing. So this painting just blew me away, and I said, "Can we get this cleaned?" And can I do my thesis on it? And I did, and uh, and that's why you know I graduated magna cum laude. I think because the, the the head of the history of art department. Um, another story about him, but but he loved that I, that I got that painting cleaned and that I, you know, discovered it and it sold for $1.8 million. That's and landscape had never sold for that before, but it was huge too. It was a really big, beautiful painting. Um, but also when he called me in, when I graduated, he said, I'm just going to tell you something. I wrote up. A paper on Radio City Music Hall because it has all that amazing socialist art in it, that incredible stuff. And it was created during the Depression in order to make people feel like they were at a palace, you know, that that's what, that's how Radio City was designed. Like it was a a sunrise, and Roxy Samuel Rothelfeld, who built it was on a cruise coming back from you know a boat i guess the one of the titanic or so i don't know <laughs> what I mean, but, and and saw this sunrise and he decided to make an art deco sunrise and that was radio city so i took a picture of all these poor people selling apples outside radio city as these people in in white fur coats got out for the opening and my history of art te- the the head of the department called me into his office and he said, okay, I'm giving you an A on this paper, not necessarily because you deserve it, but he turned to a picture of this boy selling apples to a woman getting out of her limo. And he said, that's me it was him. Oh my gosh. You... Like magazine photo. It was him as a boy selling apples with these little gloves with the fingers cut out. That's true. Not amazing. I, I can't even speak. That's the most incredible story. So I kind of, I got grazed by, by luck. Too. Smart. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> isn't that incredible? That is unbelievable.
1: It, it really I, is. Yeah. Uh, well, you did continue your education in London. You got your graduate degree in drama there, and then you made your way back to New York. So did you ever audition for any of the New York soaps back in the day?
3: I never did. That's no, so I never did. Well, I mean, not there in New York. Actually, I, I, I auditioned for one, which I didn't get, Ryan's Hope, the, the lead girl in Ryan's Hope. I can't remember what her name was, but I remember that was, and I didn't know what a soap opera was. I really didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about television. I really only ever wanted to do theater, but I came on a camping trip to California. That's how I got there. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, tell us about making your migration to the
3: West Coast. Well, um, I was um, probably like 24 or 5, I think. I'd done a tour of Romeo and Juliet that, that was a year. It was the, do you know, uh, Barry and Fran Weisler in New York, they produce a lot of Broadway stuff, but at that point they were out of New Jersey and they were producing these tours that they were equity tours, but they were, you know, <laughs> they were not paying a lot. So they, you know, hired kids, uh, just out of drama school and a guy named Jay Binder, who was a, now I think a pretty famous casting director, but he was, um, I think he directed it, the Romeo and Juliet and and then a musical. And I did this tour for a year. And at the end of it, because of boyfriend problems from the tour, I decided to go out with a friend of mine on a camping trip to California. And they were doing a play there and I knew the playwright. She was a feminist playwright named Susan Griffin. And I went like, I want to be in that play. I went to the theater and they said, oh, no, no, agent submissions only. And I went, what for a Susan Griffin play? You better be kidding me. So I wrote this scathing note. I was in blue jeans, bare feet in my Volkswagen, just hoping I could get a script and read for the play. And I wrote this note saying you should be ashamed of yourself. They're turning away, you know, working people you know, have you gone Hollywood? They came and got me in my car and brought me in, in my bare feet and, and blue jeans to meet Susan. And I did that play for a year with Sally Kirkland. That's how I ended up in California. I swear to God, I was going back to New York, but that's um, amazing. That's how I got here. Wow.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, while you were getting your feet wet in the industry, did you have a day job or were you consistently getting acting jobs?
3: I always like in New York, I was a waitress and um, and was a very good waitress. I worked at September's up on 75th and 1st. I don't know if it's still there, but um, and, and that way you could, you know, you could do stuff during the day. You could do auditions during the day. But in L.A., somebody told me you don't want to be a waitress in L.A because if people see you as a waitress. it's. Not, I went, really? All right. So I cleaned apartments with this friend of mine who's also a really successful actress now. She She's doing amazing uh, movies and stuff. She's great. So we cleaned houses together. Um, I worked at a uh, chiropractor's office, the Beverly Hills Chiropractic Center, in the daytimes, and then always sort of made deals that I could get out to audition. But that play that I did got me, you know, a really good agent because the director's agent came. They're now William Morris, but it used to be a thing called um Rifkin David. And so they came to see it because she directed it. This wonderful, wonderful woman, Gwen Arner. Um so that was just a fluke thing, too, that I got an agent. And then I got my first series fairly quickly um, after that, which was, um, I guess, m- maybe in a year or something. But it was with Jim Brooks, who was like like such an amazing director and writer and everything. And it was with Martin Short called The Associates in, uh, I guess that was 1978 or something. 17- it
0: was 1979.
3: According to my
0: research, <laughs> you would know better. <laughs> <laughs> so that show um, was critically acclaimed. Uh, but it got canceled in its first season. And I think it had a lot to do with like time slots of, of other hit shows at the time kind of stealing the audience away and as the schedule was tampered with. So I'm curious to know, at, at that time in your career, was that a crushing blow or did you like kind of not have all your eggs in that basket and were able to take it in stride? Because I, I, you, know, you think about someone getting their first series, that's a big deal. And then to have it end quickly.
3: It was a um, very, I'm trying to think what I probably, I think I can probably say everything, although, you know, sometimes I say things and I shouldn't say them, but um, it was a very complicated situation because a person in the position of being able to keep that show in its time slot um, was married to someone on the show. (laughs) And there was a lot of stuff going on. And uh, Jim Brooks made that executive come in and apologize to us. We didn't know what was going on, but they kept shifting our time slot. That's what they did. They didn't keep us Tuesday night at whatever it was, seven on ABC, or I think that's what I don't remember then. It does. I'm not sure what the network was. It doesn't really matter, but they kept shifting it around and it was because of this situation, I think, this marital situation. I don't, it, That's what the man said who came and apologized. And it was bizarre, the whole thing. I mean, next door was taxi. So those were all my friends, you know, Andy Kaufman and Judd Hirsch. It was like I was working with all these wonderful people. I. W- it was also new to me that I'm sure that I was probably disappointed. Uh, I actually have seen pictures of me then, and I think I gained quite a bit of weight. So I think I was probably going through stuff that I don't even remember. And I I went back actually a couple of years ago and shot a show called Girlfriends in that sound stage at Paramount. And it freaked me out. So I do remember there was obviously something... I think probably I buried it to keep going, Mm -hmm. you know, because you got to just keep moving as a as a kid. I was a kid, you know, and it's not like the theater. It's a brutal business, Mm -hmm. you know, so I don't remember like. But when I got back to the soundstage a couple of years ago, I went, "Ooh, (laughs) this is this doesn't feel good. Wow. I think it must have been traumatic for me Mm -hmm. as a kid, you know, but Mm -hmm. but then I, you know, Gary Goldberg hired me pretty soon after that. And he's another amazing guy who'd done mash and a sweet man and a wonderful writer. And, um, I did two series with him. So as a young person, I just, I was lucky to keep working. Mm -hmm. Um, like I can't remember how much time was in between those two things, but.
1: mm -hmm. Well, do you have a favorite memory of working with Martin short?
3: My favorite memory of Marty. Well, Yeah. Every lunch, we were so lucky. Next door was Mork and Mindy. Robin Williams would come over every lunch, and we had a guy on our show called Tim Thomerson, was also a stand-up comic. Marty, Tim Thomerson, Andy, and and uh, Robin Williams would just riff. Oh my God, can you in the hall? We would no. just stand, there. and I they let me in. I, I was not a comic. But I mean, I was on a sitcom, but I, you know, I wasn't like that kind of comic who were just like, I didn't know jokes. Like my husband is a comic. Those are people that just, they just, you know, improvise stories and jokes and jokes and jokes, but they'd let me like be part of it. I mean, every once in a while, I guess there were drugs involved <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of work. I mean, the seventies were a crazy time. They were a crazy <laughs> time. But what a, you know. And I didn't even—they weren't even famous yet, Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Andy wasn't famous. Robin really wasn't. I mean, Mark and Mindy was pretty popular, but it was just starting. So I, you know, I just thought they're geniuses. These guys right. are like, like literal geniuses. And so I was just so lucky to be around them. And and Martin was part of that. I mean, you know, they just had, all had their weird stuff that they did.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: incredible! Wow, yeah. Allie. When are you yeah. writing your memoirs? Yeah.
3: <laughs> this is my memoir right yeah. here. Thank you. I'm bringing it up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. We'll print out the transcript. You'll sell the book in 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 uh, in no time. Um, so throughout the nineteen eighties, you did a lot of episod- episodic work on like so many iconic shows: Lou Grant, Hill Street Blues, Newhart, Moonlighting. Uh, and then in nineteen eighty eight, along came the Wonder Years. So what do you remember about the audition process for the role of Norma Arnold?
3: I actually remember that very distinctly because there's a great casting director. And I, I don't even know if she's still here. I, she really wanted to leave and go. And I hope she did and is in the country and maybe even teaching, but she was like an amazing person. And she called me in and she goes, Ellie, this isn't what you think it is. I go, I don't understand what it is. I don't know what this voiceover thing is. What is it? Mary, Mary Buck was her name. Amazing person. She said, this woman would have gone to, to, Radcliffe or Yale or something and graduated, but she got married to her high school sweetheart. You know, it's kind of a fifties character because now it was the seventies and we were, you know, like I was actually in my thirties, I think early thirties when I did the one years. And um, so she said, just put on a shirt waist dress and kids and pearls and know underneath that you're smart, um, maybe smarter than your husband. But you just, you know, family's everything. And so I really considered it a character. Like, it wasn't me. Um, My mother sent me her shirtwaist dress. Love it. Red and white pinstripe shirtwaist dress. And I wore it and I wore pearls and kids. And my whole objective was just that my family's happy. And that I have this, I raised this beautiful family and that they're all great, great kids. And everybody else, Mary told me, came in and because it was a fight scene with the husband that we auditioned with, everybody else was fighting in modern ways, you know, like the way that we would now fight with our partners because women are way more liberated now. You know what I mean? But in those days, what you want is to make peace, make peace, make. So, so I, when I, when I was arguing with Jack, it was like I kept everything down. And, and that's, I know what did it. I mean, because they told me that was what was different from everybody else, was that, you know, they were too modern. Everybody that came, and I'm sure amazing women read for it because it was such a great script. You know, I think a lot of people wanted to be in that uh, Mm -hmm. show. It was kind of groundbreaking, really. The writing was so good. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it, though. I didn't understand what the voiceover (laughs) was. And it was like on typed paper with all these mistakes in it. And I'm like, so weird. (laughs) It's happening. (laughs) Go with it. Go with it. And then another thing that got me cast was Olivia Davo came and auditioned with me because Fred was in Chicago and I couldn't meet him. But he wanted to to feel like um, and and I think uh, Dan Loria was there, too. But she came in in a little silk scarf around her neck like you wore in the 60s with no bra. And she had big boobs. And I literally started blushing and they went, okay, you're her. <laughs> we're done. We're done. Like that, <laughs> literally, because I just started like laughing when she came in with these. It really made me blush, you know. I think because I was in that head, you know. Mm-hmm. That's
1: so funny. It's well, amazing. when you were auditioning, were you thinking, "Oh, this is a great audition," or were you
3: thinking, "This show is going to be a hit"? I really want it. No idea. Okay, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I had no. Somebody told me. I don't think it was Mary. I think it was somebody else. I knew that Redford said, "I think this is the best. This is the best show." of the year this is the pilot wow i'm like huh i didn't get it no i didn't know and i even didn't know when we shot it because we just shot a pilot we didn't shoot like you know 22 episodes right away um Mm -hmm. but it's like so many people said this there's something this is just an astonishing show and it won an emmy after one episode i mean just the pilot so it was it, it they put it after the abc thought it was so good they put it after the super bowl its first air date and it got an Emmy, you know, we won best show that year. And Fred couldn't be there. The producers couldn't be there because they were having a baby. So like I got to go up with Dan and my shoe fell off and everything is so <laughs> Emmy thing is is best sitcom, which is odd. It's but it's the last category of the day. So and we've been drinking way too much champagne, and I because I thought there's no way we just did a, one episode. You know what I mean? <laughs> but we won, and I'm like carrying this thing around. <laughs> we got to make a speech. It was so great. It was really awesome.
0: That is so phenomenal. No well, obviously the show was a huge hit critically and also popularly speaking. What is your theory about? why it connected so well with viewers?
3: I really think the writing was, I mean, Jim Brooks is an amazing writer. I got to work with him, but this writing, it was, you know, there'd never been a sitcom like it. Like Jim Brooks still had a laugh track. It was in those days, right? So I was in the I was in the cusp of when those old sitcoms that were shot live in front of an audience, we shot on film um, and with no laugh track. So it really wasn't even a comedy. It was kind of like a dramedy, you know, Mm -hmm. it was real. And they took such attention to every detail, the right, the Neil Marlins and Carol Black, they were so brilliant, really brilliant. They had an amazing director come in and do the first um, 18 episodes and, uh, it just was it the right it's with the writing Mm -hmm. i mean i i'd love to say it was us and we did have a beautiful cast and fred is just astonishing i mean Mm -hmm. what a little soul from
0: should have have seen him tap dance Go,
3: (laughs) i mean he was really just remarkably present and such a deep little spirit for a nine year old i mean Astonishing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: just
3: a natural talent. And um, so it was all of that. And having a voiceover was so new, but it was also the Vietnam War. Um, you know, I'd done a, a, a pilot with Gary Goldberg about the Vietnam War, but it was um, it was because it was combat and it was in Vietnam. It, it just was too soon to be funny. It was kind of like MASH, but the Vietnam War. And it, and it it was didn't it was too soon. But this brought the, you know, because it was on TV, the war was on TV right there in the kitchen. Um, it just brought and in the in the pilot you know, uh, Danica, Winnie Cooper's brother dies in the war. So it it brought so many things in right away that were so powerful, and yet it was touching and funny, and there was all this family sibling stuff that was hilarious, the butthead and everything. hmm Yeah.
1: Well, do you remember how life changed for you once you were now on a hit show, or did life change for you?
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
3: Um. Yeah. Um. Did life change for me? Well, I mean, life always changes for you. Like, right? I mean, let's be honest. Every day is, you know, life changes. It changed the the, um being on a show that that so many people watched because it was still three networks. I think at that point. We didn't have any streaming stuff. So it was, I think we had something like 17 million or 18 million people watched you every week. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So you do get recognized. And that's a, you know, I know self-worth stars do because so many people watch them. Um, like when Bold and Beautiful people go to Italy, it's like, look out. Um, but um, so that was new. Being recognized in a restaurant or something like that, maybe getting a nice table because of that was new. Um, I'd never made money before like that. I mean, I'd done series, but not that it lasted for you know six and a half years. And so that was different. Uh and and then you have to make sure that you don't become a jerk because like you know, like everybody else. Work is so hard. You know, I have so many friends that were unemployed and and i had been there five seconds before. A lot of crew members helped me, said, you know, just you got to be, got to stay humble. You got, you can't take this stuff seriously. That first guy on the associates said, put your money away and don't take this seriously. Stay humble. He was such an amazing anchor for me because I didn't have any family out here. Um. So, you know, I think the major thing that changed was that I was recognized, but I also knew that you know it wasn't because of my performance so it wasn't like i was starring in something that it might really explode your head i was on something that was really well written and very deep so like people would come up to me and say you know women would say oh you know they would talk to me about being a woman in the 50s so it wasn't like oh you're amazing i wasn't like charo you know <laughs> <laughs> although i'd love to be charo um <laughs> But, you know, because I was playing a character, I think that's a big difference, you know? So it mm-hmm. wasn't like they were, they loved me. They loved Norma. So right. it doesn't go to your head the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was lucky because I've watched a lot of people, honestly, friends of mine, change. Mm-hmm. And it's its really sad, you know, like this this town can eat you up yeah. and spit you out and, you um, I think, thank God I was old enough too, because I was already, I think I was like 35, maybe or 34 when I got the Wonder Years. I don't remember the math. I think it was in 86 and I was born in 50. It was like 35. So, um, you know, already I'd been around and I'd also been right before the Wonder Years in a period where I wasn't working because I sort of moved from my late twenties being a kind of weirdo character person and never saw myself as a housewife because I didn't have a family or children. I wasn't married. Uh, so when Mary Buck said, pl- you know, play the ultimate housewife, I went, Mary, I going as a mother? She goes, shut up, put on the face <laughs> and just hide the fact that you're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I so I went with that. And, yeah, That's it nice. was just it was such it was such a wonderful thing to the first thing to be so popular, just be so well-written mm-hmm. and affect people. You know what I mean? That's the other thing. It wasn't just a fun thing where everybody loves you because it's popular, but it that show affected people. Yeah. So they love you in a different kind of way, you know? Yeah. Like being in a good play. Right. Right.
0: So I'm curious um, in the wake of the success of that show, did you feel at all pigeonholed by the housewife idea or the mom Uh, idea when it came to casting you know your follow-up projects
3: well I didn't but they did I mean I I was like that's all that that you know suddenly I'm getting like hallmark mothers and I'm like what because again because I'm not one I'm it's so not me And it, yeah, it, it was, it really threw me and it was hard to fight against that. I kept saying, you know, at that point, independent movies were beginning to sort of come up. And I was like, give me weirdos on independent movies, you know, help me out, get me out. And that's when I did, started doing a lot of theater um, to just sort of get back to my, my roots of what are weirdo roots. uh Uh-huh. (laughs) I just love playing character stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. but nobody saw me that way anymore. You know, everybody saw me as this blonde housewife and it was so weird because that was just a character. It wasn't me, but I guess people thought it was, you know, that they thought I was this sweet, you know, loving, nurturing mother type of person. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, I, I wanted to work. So it wasn't that I said no, but you know, it's, It's not that fun to be, you know, just like a Hallmark mother (laughs) all the time. (laughs) Right. Well, we're going to jump ahead
1: quite a bit to 2006 when you joined the cast of The Bold and the Beautiful in the role of Uh.
3: Pam Douglas. So tell us how B&B entered your world. So they just called me out of the blue and said, um, it was just for 10 episodes, that Susan Flannery, who is the star of the show, they were going to do a storyline that she'd been abused as a child. And was going back to confront her mother, played by the amazing Betty White, um, in Chicago, my hometown. um, And I was her, you know, weird, uh, what's the word, kind of homely sister who her whole life had been living alone with Betty White. Hello. You know, that's not a healthy person. And Betty was a mean mother. And she was coming back to confront her saying, why didn't you protect me? And why did you pretend this didn't happen? And I loved Susan Flannery. Oh, my gosh, what a force of nature. So to do scenes with Betty White and Susan, not knowing anything about soap operas, not knowing like and poor Betty, I mean, had these monologue, 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 monologues. And you guys know all about that. It's like literally you get. I don't know. I just had it yesterday. I had eight pages, uh, eight page monologue in on. Oh gosh, (laughs) you know. And Betty was eighty something at that point, you know. And so I said, Betty, you know what? I'm going to learn your lines. So I'm just going to feed you and just you know stop. I'll give you the word, you know. And I and I and I ran lines with her all the time, and she didn't care. She didn't care. I mean, (laughs) she knew. I don't know if I can say. Can I say the f word on this blog? Sure. Betty taught me if you don't like what you're doing or you can't remember what you're doing, just say <laughs> 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 you have to stop. And then, and then they can't print it. And if she didn't like, if she lost her train of thought or didn't like it, then she did that. And it was really for, for Susan to win an Emmy because it, you know, was such fantastic scenes for her to come back with this confrontation it was so powerful. And they did flashbacks of her as a little girl with with her dad. I mean, you know, and I was this, you know, kind of, you know, weird, twisted, younger sister who had watched it. And and it was like and then I just like I don't I'm not a crier like they are on soap operas. But like when I saw her, I was like, it wasn't my fault. You know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And I just like suddenly looking at Susan, I felt so bad and I burst into tears. And and that's when they said, would I stay on the show? (laughs) We had such chemistry together as sisters. Yes, you did. Um, And and I loved working with her. It was really, again, like being in the theater because she's just such a good actor. And so Betty and I decided, you know, yeah. So we both signed contracts and they decided to bring me out to Beverly Hills, you know, to the Forester Creations and everything and play a a, a line, a, a through line where I sort of get a crush on on Susan, Susan's husband, John McCook. And he likes the fact that I'm womanly, but I didn't really think that that's what Pam was. I hadn't thought about it. The guy didn't feel that way at all with Susan. I just felt I was just damaged, like very damaged by my childhood and living with Betty all my life. I was just weird and geeky and everything, but they wanted me. They had this storyline where I was going to be like a homemaker. And and so in one phone call, they had me in Chicago and I was with my dog and I was eating a sandwich and the dog wanted a piece of the sandwich. So I gave the dog the sandwich and then he started licking my lips and I started licking his lips. And Brad went, "Okay, she's crazy. (laughs) So That's how it all happened that Pam got sort of born out of this weird thing with the sandwich and the dog. You know, I just, I don't know, for some reason I just thought I'm going to lick his mouth. He's licking mine. I'm licking his. And we're both eating a sandwich and that just was the birth of Pam coming out. And, and then we just developed this weird sister relationship and they figured it out after that. And that's why I stayed, I stayed on the show. Like, and the reason I stayed too, to be honest is, you know, almost everything that I was getting offered was out of town. And I just got, I finally found the love of my life. Um, it was in, in the early nineties that I met Orson and like right away, literally the first week that we were married, this man, uh, Michael Patrick King had written a series, um, with Deborah, Deborah Mazur was producing it. And she was the star opposite this other person in New York city, but it was going to be shot out here. I thought, and I, I nailed it. I knew I was doing this show because she's so great, Deborah Mazur and Michael Patrick King. Oh my God, another amazing, funny writer. And I, you know, basically, I thought it was a done deal. And then they called me the night before when I signed the contract, and they said, you know, when I you have to sign a contract before you go to meet the network, just that you'll accept that deal. And they said it's going to be shot in New York. Deborah wants to shoot in New York in Brooklyn. I'm like, I just got married, so we stayed up all night, my husband and I, and I said. I can't. I can't do this unless would you come with me and we could rent a house with? Because it was a lot of money. Because I'd been doing the one. I'd already done the Wonder Years, so I had like that's how you do it in TV. You know, it's like what your last job was that back in the old days. Probably now it's not. But and so I was going to be making so much money. I so said we could rent a townhouse in New York and bring the cats. You know. And he said, "I'm a provider. I'm I'm working on Doctor Quinn. I'm not going to quit my job and come be a backstory, be a backstage." door Johnny, you know, he goes, I'm a provider, Al, and you go do it and, and we'll see each other on weekends. I went, no, no, I could, my heart broke. I, so it's like, I couldn't, he said, just go talk to that and that, meet them. And I I lost, so I did, but I lost heart. I couldn't even remember the character. I couldn't make it funny. I couldn't do it. I just looked at Michael Patrick King. And I said, I'm so sorry. I can't do this. I can't do it. And that's when, you know, the soap, I'm like, I could be here. I could come home for dinner. You know, right. you can't do a series and come home for dinner. You have to just work all the time, all the time. And it's like four in the morning sometimes. So that's, you know, when I, when they said, you you know, would I go under a contract at b and I went, this is perfect, you know? And right. I loved the character and I love Susan. So that's how that whole thing birthed.
0: Oh, I love that. Um, And particularly, Allie, because you as you once told Soap Opera Digest, had never seen an episode of a soap opera in your life. No. Could you, I mean, oh. we could say, where were you when Luke and Laura got married? And you would say, I have no clue. I don't know who Luke
3: and Laura are. I'm just fascinated well, by I knew them. they, I'd heard okay. of them, but I didn't, <laughs> okay. know, I didn't know what General Hospital was. I didn't <laughs> know what a soap opera was. You know, I just didn't. And when I got there, it really threw me. I mean, to have all those different sound stages, And you move so quickly, but in the old days, you thank God you didn't move as quickly as you do now. I mean, now it's out of control, Mm -hmm. but you know, at least we got to rehearse as actors on the set together, you know, before they lit it and blocked it, they, they followed gear blocking. So you could say, I got to run to the couch and sit or stand up and spit or, you know, and they follow you Mm -mm, not anymore. But so it was so, I, 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 I was like, Thrown at the beginning, it mm-hmm. was really um overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I believe it. I believe yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Well, could you ever have imagined when you first started at BNB that that was going to be the start of like a sixteen-year working yeah. relationship?
3: No, <laughs> never. <laughs> no, and I did because I also didn't know the longevity of soaps, and also you know, Bold and Beautiful, bless their hearts, they're very. Brad is very loyal to his crew, to the producers, to the, you know, like all of our directors were people that started as PAs. I mean, come on, and women, a lot of women. Um, And they're that way with, you know, as you know, because it's so insidious because he keeps the same actors. Everybody has affairs with like almost their brothers, you know, (laughs) but but that's the amazing thing is he he keeps that, you know, Susan had been on the show for 45 years or something, I don't know, but forever. And John McCook and, you know, and Kelly and Ron Moss at that point. You know, it was really a family. Yeah. And I love that.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, Well, for people who might be worried
1: before we move on to Port Charles that they will no longer see you on Bold and Beautiful. What can you say about your future on that show? Well, I'm
3: actually going
1: back. Next week. So now we can say that we will be seeing Pam also in Los Angeles. Well, now moving on to General Hospital. So as General Hospital fans know, it turns out that the top secret role you were hired to play is that of literally my favorite General Hospital character ever, Heather (laughs) Weber, um, one of the show's most iconic villains who has actually had multiple portrayers, but is, of course, most associated with the longest running Heather, Robin Mattson. So first I have to say you're off to such an incredible start. Just amazing. But before we get too far into gushing about your performance, <laughs> take us back to first getting word that GH was
3: interested in you. Well, speaking of Robin Matson, I mean, what a what shoes to fill. Because when they said they called me and they said that they were wanting to bring back this iconic, you know, character. And I started watching the tapes of Robin Matson. I'm like, why isn't Robin Matson coming back to do this? And I guess it's a family thing. You know, she's whatever. I I guess she lives back on the East Coast or something like that. And, you know, her life. But I just went, oh, you know, I just done a play in New York last year and I had to replace Judith Ivy, who's a, you know, an amazing Broadway actress because <laughs> she broke her leg. And they just said, can you come in, you know, like immediately because the play is going to open in New York. And I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> with with wonderful actors, you know, Lindsey Krauss and Tony Roberts and everything like that. And I had 10 days to learn this play. Well, I felt like this was the same thing um, to replace somebody like that. And again, a fan favorite who the fans just love her because she's so nuts mm-hmm. and, you know, like had these crazy storylines. And, um, and I started watching her when she was really young and Robin, you're gorgeous, by the way. I don't know if you're listening to this, but holy moly, uh, gorgeous and sexy and just so many things before she became crazy. (laughs) Jeff Weber stuff and, you know, Stephen Lars and oh, my gosh. So I I had to go back and look at all the, you know, the crazy, insane tapes of the plots. And I saw this amazing scene where, uh, you know, Stephen Lars is married to Olivia. And of course, that makes Heather, insane. And she decides to inject Olivia with LSD. And and Olivia, of course, is wearing a low cut dress, (laughs) screaming and writhing as she's tripping. (laughs) It's so funny and so good. And she's such a great actress. And then I got to work with her. Um, I think that that show's already aired, so I can say it. But she screams in the hallway when she sees me. And I could hardly keep a straight face because she's so good, Lisa LoCicero. Like a man, and she still looks fourteen years old, which I also get to say. But that's because she's married to someone fancy now, somebody rich. She's giving up my son for better pastures, you know, being a, a woman of of great wealth now. Um, but it's just there was it was so much fun to do this research because Robin's been on the show since she was you know a child, and I got to follow all the crazy shenanigans and you know try to. It, it, it also like, how do you become Heather? Cause that's her. So how, how do I make, I, I wanted to be, be as true as I could to the character, Heather Weber. And also, you know, I don't, you know, I don't look like her. I'm not as sexy as her. It's a whole nother kind of thing, you know? So, but I just, I'm having so much fun. I just love it. I love Allie,
0: it. whatever you did, bottle it and sell it because it was so impressive. <laughs> it was you, but it was such a clear, uh, a clearly influenced by Robin in just all the right ways. I, I was really kind of speechless
3: at your first episode. I don't know if you noticed, but I said to the makeup artist, Robin Masson has really dark eyebrows. I want them. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I made my hair. I've been gray all during COVID because I am now can play older people. <laughs> and so I just let my hair get gray. And I was you know, playing some pretty weird people. I did a movie of an old woman with gray hair. And so I said, no, I'm going to go back and be blonde like Robin. I want to do, I want to try to be as true to it as I can. So I kept my hair long like hers because it looks crazy, I think, if you're in prison with long hair. <laughs> but now I'm way older than Robin. So it's like, you know, because I, I think I'm probably 65 in the show. I'm not really sure. But so I wanted to go for it. But I said, I got to look like her. So I got the eyebrows and the blonde hair. And that's my my tribute. <laughs> and I incredible. try to throw in as much of her crazy as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, well, uh, they did not ease you in to playing Heather West. Well. You, you have me. not eased me in. <laughs> so were you, oh. like when you show up that first day, are you nervous about just getting through
3: all that material? You know what? It was... Um, so much that I just, um, I believe in God. (laughs) So I had to turn it over a hundred percent because it was so beyond, it wasn't only the words it was, uh, being in that character wanting, you know, I know who's on the other end of that camera, which is like millions of people in the Midwest who loved Heather Weber. I don't want to disappoint anybody. So I just said, you know what, that, I, I can't carry that pressure because it'll freak me out. You know, it'll, I, 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 I just have to give it up. And, you know, I, so I just prayed that I would, um, that, that Heather would come alive and, and thank God my first scenes were with Michael Easton because wow, what a cool, wonderful giving person that man is mm-hmm. and, uh, so fun to work with and so fun to dick with. You know, (laughs) it was really giving him a hard time, but he's such a fun person to tease, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because he's he's just he's great that way. He's very accessible and fun to work with. So for some reason, and really, it's kind of new for me. And I had I had the same experience when I did that play in New York. It's like you just have to jump. And when they when I got to New York, by the way, the director called me when I got off the airplane, I was in the car and he said, I have some news It's going to freak you out. I went, yeah. He said, your understudy found out you were replacing Judith. And so she quit. Can you go on tonight? And I just read the play on the plane. And I went, yes. So it's the same thing, you know, but at that point, you just have to let go because there's no way if you let fear get in there, you're going to die. Because the pressure is so intense, you know, you just have to go. It's it's like not in my hands in a way, but then you have to just study, 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 get get rid of all the words, and then you know show up. And I just had so much fun, but it surprised me because I just didn't have any fear, Mm -hmm. and that's that's not necessarily been the hit my history because, you know, when you said did I have disappointments like after the associates and stuff, I think you know, those things do hit you, you know, and you develop a certain kind of fear that you, so yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: So
3: so it was just a ball. I had a ball.
1: Well, we know you weren't a soap fan back in the day, but is there anyone from GH that you were familiar with going in or have you run into any familiar faces in the hallway?
3: Um, I have run into familiar, the familiar faces are because I've looked at years and years and years, (laughs) years of GH and I know everybody. So like the, one of the first people I ran into is Sunny. Who by the way, I get to work with. I'm so excited. I <laughs> um, have some great stuff with him. Um, so these people are so awesome. I've read, you know, and Carly and I just and and you know, Mora West, I've told them all, you guys are frigging amazing. Um, Nina, I mean, they're just such good actors. They're mm-hmm. such good actors. And and I and I can say that with like my whole heart, how how great they are. I did know one person. Um, who plays Ryan. We had dinner because he and his wife moved to Venice and a friend of ours, so he and Orson and I and and our friend, mutual friend had dinner. So he's the only person that I actually had met before, but I didn't even, when I was looking at the tapes, I didn't even realize it was him. <laughs> because mm-hmm. his character is so weird <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was just going to say that I think that we can tease that next week on the show you will have scenes with the character of Scotty Baldwin played oh. by Ken Schreiner who's Heather's former flame and the father of her late son Franco uh, what was
1: Ken like to work
3: with? oh so fun. He's he's out of control. He's so <laughs> and you know, and so fun for Heather, too. But just as people, I mean, what a great guy Kim Schreiner is. And again, I'd seen him when he was like 12 on the show. I mean, how old was he when he started? He was like a, probably a teenager or something in those vests, remember, and that hair. And I wanted to say you know, like, look at your hair, baby. What happened <laughs> to you? But I, did. I, I thought I, I probably shouldn't, but I did when we were rehearsing. And then he said that he had this new girlfriend and I went, is she fat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was so much fun to work with. We really got along. We have really good chemistry. Um, First of all, again, I'd seen him throughout the years yeah. and uh, but second of all, he's just, I love the way he works. He's very loose. Mm -hmm. You never know what's going to come from Ken. I mean, minute to minute, you don't, even after you rehearse, you don't, you you don't know what he's going to say. You don't know where he's going to move. And I like that. It keeps you on your toes. I have a feeling it's going to be like that working with Sonny. Cause I, as an actor, he looks kind of dangerous too. And it looks like it's going to be fun to kind of, you know, not know what he, I like when you don't know what somebody's going to do. And Michael Easton was like that too. You can't, you're not really sure what he, I like that, you know, that you're really in the moment with somebody, but Ken is like one of a kind. He's just hilarious. He's mm-hmm. so funny and um, just a, you know, a rebel. So I hope because I have such good chemistry with him, I hope that we can, you know, have more stuff together. I don't, I don't know how this whole thing works <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just minute to minute for me at this point. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: well, You know, on a personal note, as many people listening may be aware, you did lose your beloved husband of 27 years, Orson Bean, in February of 2020. Um, So first of all, it was right before the pandemic um, really hit, but we wanted to first express our condolences. Um, Dr. Quinn is one of my favorite shows of all time. I have such good memories of him from, you know, on a professional note. But, um, you know, what was that like for you during the pandemic and when did you feel it was ready for you to go back to work?
3: Um, whoa it was, uh, I, 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 it's, I mean, it's not, it isn't even a was yet, unfortunately. Um, cause that we were so lucky for 30 years to like spend 24 hours a day together. Um, even when we worked, I would go with him and he would come with me. We were just always together and I did not, He made me promise, and I did, that I would never think, because he's older than me, you know, he's 22 years older than me, but he was like, our grandparents both were 105, so I have that gene pool, I knew he did, he was like 100% brilliant still at his age, and physically never sick, and all he did was ever get two new knees, and then he was back on his bicycle at 90, you know what I mean, so Orson was going to be around forever, and he made me promise that I would never think about it. He said, "Don't ever think about the future. Don't think about it. Just be with me." So we didn't prepare. We didn't think about it. I never thought would, that I was ever going to be by myself. I just actually never did. So it was such a shock, and I was actually present. You know, when he got hit by the cars, it was a lot. And um, being without him, thank God. The other thing he said to me is, "We have our family all around us. We live in the canals in Venice, and so do the kids." And even though they're not my children, we've been together for 30 years. So all the grandchildren are my grandchildren. And, you know, they're too old to be my real kids. But um, we are such close friends. We're so and Orson always said, they're going to be there for you. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not really their mother. You know, and I'm very close to Orson's ex-wife, their mother. And she's their mother. I'm not. But I don't have that relationship with them, but they have been so present because they love their dad so much. So, like the, the whole two years after Orson died, I would literally just sit in the backyard of this beautiful backyard that you, you know. And, um, they would, you know, come over, all my friends came over, uh, a lot of the cast of the B&B, Torsten K, bless his heart, came and built me stuff, you know, put up a tent. He put up a Christmas tree. He was here all the time as a man, you know, like with a hatchet, that kind of guy. He just showed up, you know, and and the producer Casey from Bold and Beautiful just, sh- they just showed up on my porch with a bottle of wine, you know. And so I've been so insanely blessed that way. Um, and like I said, you know, I believe in God. So I have a church family um, that's been so supportive and came that night. My pastor came that night. This amazing woman, Beverly Bam Crawford. She's incredible. You know, she's just, Orson found this amazing church. It's it's basically an all-black church. We're the only white people that love us, though. We're family, Bible enrichment, you know. And uh, so everybody showed up and everybody keeps showing up. And um, really the the play, I went and did uh, a fantasy island, which is going to air next year. I did do that because it was in Puerto Rico. And I thought, go. everybody said, just go out. It was kind of like one of those Hallmark housewife things, you know, like mm-hmm. I said. But it was Puerto Rico and, you know, for a couple of weeks in a hotel. And it was with Dan Loria, which was another. Oh, thing. wow. That's wow. amazing. So he played my husband. And that was awesome to be with him for those two weeks. And he's been very supportive, you know. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, when the play happened, I thought you should go to New York, do it. Just go. And I felt like Orson was with me because he'd been at that theater. He'd worked at that theater a lot. Um, it was an amazing historic theater, the St. Clemens Church. It's like an, it's an off big broad, off Broadway house but he, I felt it was there every night backstage. I just felt them. So, and I, so I'm just listening to myself, like, no, 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 you know, things come in and I'm like, Nope, Nope. doesn't feel right. doesn't feel right. And then when this happened, I went, yep. I just thought, I don't know, playing a lunatic on yes. So I just said yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so here I am. I just dove in, you know, and it feel, yeah. it just feels right. Again. You know, I feel like, Um, it's something Orson would want me to do, you know, to just be brave. That's great. I I, I,
0: I love that you've created such an incredible niche on daytime television of just embracing the crazy. I know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And it's strange because I'm really not that crazy. (laughs) I don't think. (laughs) But I became crazy too. I know. It's weird. I don't know why. Um, Maybe it's just because that's also a daytime niche. You know, you need a little levity. I mean, before on BNB, it was Sally Spectra, you know, and I, and those shoes needed to be filled up somebody who's just kind of wacko and funny. And I had her room, which was so cool. That's awesome. In the room, you know, and I didn't get to meet her. I never met her before she died, but what a hilarious, brilliant person. Everybody loved her. So I kind of felt like, again, I had to fill her shoes in a way, you know, in some way. Yeah. I wasn't playing her, but you know, I was playing, a comic wacko mm-hmm. in a way, right, right. which I don't right. think they expected me to do when I first came to Bold and Beautiful. I don't think that's what they thought. Those shoes—that wasn't. But Brad figured,
0: well, you know. You know, what, you know what they always say when you lick the dog's mouth. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Well,
0: lucky, lucky us that that uh, that daytime has utilized your inner crazy so or uh, unleashed yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well. Ali, we are so extremely grateful to you for spending this time with us. Um,
3: oh, you and- know, one thing that I forgot yeah. to say, um, because another thing that they told me uh, that when the reason that they're bringing Heather back is it's going to be the 60th anniversary of GH. So they're going to be bringing, I think, a lot of older characters back. I mean, I think even Jeff Weber, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, he's already uh, back. Yeah. You know, and Kim is obviously back. And I think that that's part of what they're doing so that makes me feel good too you know that even though i i'm not a vet of gh it's like an honor to be part of you know being brought into that pool you know mm-hmm. what i mean for the people Absolutely. that have been watching this for literally ever
0: and it sounds like we we need to sort of thank your father for for helping us on that road um, <laughs> Well, I know a little bit about what's coming up for Heather. So I definitely think that General Hospital fans should expect the unexpected. I think it's going to be really fun to see you interact with some familiar, you know, characters in Heather's orbit, but also some new connections and uh, I'm I'm pretty pretty excited. Off to an amazing start, as we said.
1: We look so forward to seeing what you're going to do as both Heather and Pam. Yeah, and so happy to see you on two networks and just you know back on our screens more regularly. So
3: they thank you, Allie. Actually, they asked me actually if if Heather might say something that's a weird little reference. Pam. And I think we're going to sneak something in. Oh,
1: (laughs) Those
0: those are are
3: gifts.
1: Those are gifts to the audience. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Allie. It was so great getting to know more about you and talk to you and we wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Allie Mills for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.